Hey there, thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. Uh, My name is Tim Hamrich, and I get the pleasure of every week bringing you the stories of the founders, the farmers, the innovators, the investors, the people shaping the future of agriculture. Now, today's episode is a look into how a small group of farmers are building the U.S.-grown quinoa industry from scratch. But that's not all. I mean, this story today weaves together a few different kind of interesting storylines. The first of which is how a graduate student in the early 1980s rented ground from a farm family in the San Luis Valley of Colorado to see if quinoa could grow there. And now once the project got started, it was planted and all of that, the graduate student sadly passed away before he could complete this research. But the project ultimately led the farmers on this 30-year journey to commercialize the production of U.S.-grown quinoa. So you're going to hear about that. And then there's a story of water in this area of southern Colorado. If you don't know where the San Luis Valley is of Colorado, go take a look at it. But it's a really complex topic in general, and especially in that area. Uh, We don't even really scratch the surface of it on this episode, but we do get into why quinoa saves water and why that's so important to that area. Finally, the episode is an interesting look into how an agricultural supply chain really gets built from scratch. The farmers that ultimately formed what's now called Colorado Quinoa, two of which are on the show here today, partnered with Ardent Mills. Now, many of you probably recognize that name as the milling and ingredient joint venture between ConAgra Foods, Cargill, and CHS. So we have on the show Paul New, who's a third-generation farmer on the operation that this all began with that graduate student visiting over 30 years ago in Moscow, Colorado. Joining him is another San Luis Valley farmer and one of the other farmers that joined Paul in the Colorado Quinoa Venture, Sheldon Rocky. Sheldon farms with his brother in Center, Colorado. Both Paul and Sheldon grow specialty potatoes as well as a number of other crops. Uh, They'll talk about not only the water benefits of quinoa, but how it fits into their rotation so well. Also joining Paul and Sheldon is Angela Equan, who leads the technical team of the specialty crop business unit of Ardent Mills. That unit is called the Annex. So having all three here, Paul, Sheldon, and Angela on the show, gives a great perspective into both the how and the why this supply chain for U.S.-grown quinoa is being built. We start off with how this whole thing really got started clear back in the 80s. Here's Paul New. Well, the early 80s, we were growing uh, some organic wheat, alfalfa, raised a few sheep and cattle. And a fellow by the name of David Cusack came by and wanted to rent a little ground to try to grow an experimental crop called quinoa. At that time, my father said, well, we've got a little ground we could rent to you. And we kind of watched him grow it out there. Unfortunately, the year that David planted the quinoa on our ground, he was killed in South America. But at the time, he was a student at uh, Denver University studying for his doctorate under John McCammett. So John McCammett had kind of been following his work, and he came down and took over David's quinoa research. And that's kind of where we got started. We were watching him grow the quinoa and it was kind of an exciting plant because it didn't seem to use very much water, grew pretty well here in the San Luis Valley. And uh, as we learn more about the nutritional value and the 
uh, versatility of it, uh, we got pretty excited about it. Wow, that's that's just a heartbreaking story. So he was in graduate school, and kind of how did you first get connected with him to even try this project? Well, he knew that the San Luis Valley here matched well climate-wise with where it was being grown in uh, Bolivia and Peru, as far as elevation, the cool, dry summers that we have, uh, very similar to that what they have there, and so he thought it would grow well. The first year he tried it, he had rented some ground, but it had some herbicide residue, and that killed the quinoa. So he was looking for an organic farm, and we happened to have it. And then, uh, like I said, he, he we just rented him a little ground and kind of watched what he was doing. What encouraged you to keep going then with the quinoa after that experience? Like I said, we were farming uh, wheat, alfalfa, some cattle, uh, sheep. The farm economy at the time was kind of kind of tough, and we were looking for other things to grow. And we liked the whole idea. We knew that living here in the San Luis Valley, water was uh, real critical. Even 30 years ago, water was going to be short. We were always short of water a little bit. So we found a crop that uh, would use less water, look like a, the marketability was really exciting because of the nutritional benefits as well as the versatility when he was growing it, he actually brought us a little to try, and it's like, wow, this stuff's really pretty good. You know, a lot of the stuff when I was growing up, my folks would try something. It's like, well, it'll grow, but it tastes like crap, so we didn't want to grow it. <laughs> I didn't want to mess with it. And, of course, I was like most kids. If it didn't taste good, I didn't want to eat it. But uh, this kind of came through. I was like, hey, this is pretty good stuff. But the big thing was is just the water savings, uh, the nutritional value, and it seemed to it give the San Luis Valley another crop that could be a rotation with the potatoes that we were growing. I would imagine when you're starting something like that, you probably didn't know anyone else that was growing it. How did you go about finding a place to market it? <laughs> well, you're right. When we started, we knew nothing about it. We grew it experimentally from a, oh, the early 80s, like 81, 82. And then in 1987, that's when... Uh, John McCammon's family and my family kind of decided, hey, we have a chance to bring quinoa to the market. We thought it was going to be a crop of the future. So we uh, partnered, and that was the start of White Mountain Farm, actually. We took my grandparents' uh, land, put it in the farm. The McCammons kind of joined us, and they were the financial backers of it. And we started growing quinoa really just on the information we'd gathered in the experimental plots. We had a fairly successful first year in 1987, uh, had a little quinoa, and then it really was get on the phone, start calling chefs, the health food stores, wherever we thought we could sell it and tell them the story. And before long, people were like, yeah, I'll try it. And we started selling out pretty quick. At the time, we thought, wow, this is going to be pretty easy because it was actually fairly easy to market because of the health benefits, the the versatility, the flavor. But we ended up having a lot more trouble with production because all of a sudden we found that bugs like it, the wind blows it out. It's hard to control the weeds in, particularly when you don't know what you're doing. So it's taken us a few years to really iron out the production. We've also improved the seed for our area. That's uh, spent a lot of time improving the seed making it a little more uniform, uh, handles our climate maybe just a little better. So the post-harvest sounds like it was pretty straightforward then. 
It was. Uh, it does take a little bit of specialized equipment to clean it. Uh, it has that saponin coating on it, which is a bitter coating that has to be polished or washed off. So we had to develop uh, some equipment to do that on a, a relatively small scale, but we did that and got that done. So fairly straightforward, but there was some complications there as well. And at that time, then, it sounds like the quinoa craze was already beginning in the U.S. Is that right? It was probably just getting started. Some of the people that actually David Cusack worked with, uh, Steve Gored and Don McKinley, they started Quinoa Corporation. I believe it was in California at the time, or it might have been Boulder. But they'd start a, a company to start importing the quinoa, and they were doing the marketing as well. And that's really when it started taking off, when some volume started being imported. Yeah. Well, on another topic here, you had said that it's a good rotation with the potatoes. What makes this a good crop to rotate with potatoes? You try to rotate with a different uh, genus. You don't want too many of the same type of plants to rotate. Potatoes are a tuber. It's a pseudo grain. It's not a true grain, as in it's not in the grass family. It's actually in the chinopodium family. So it's actually very closely related to our lamb's quarter weed, which obviously makes it a challenge to keep the weeds out. But uh, it, it was just something different that you want in your rotations. The, the water savings is a big deal, but doesn't seem to be you know a host for a lot of potato diseases and stuff. So it was something to break that rotation. At the time, or even still, the big rotation is uh, barley. So it's just another option. I, I didn't say. realize that it wasn't a grain. It's actually in the Chinopodium family where most grains are, you know, the wheat, the barleys, the oats are, are more of a grass type plant, where this is more of a seed. We call it a grain because we treat it like a grain, but it's actually a seed. Sheldon, why don't you jump in here? When did quinoa kind of pop up on your radar or the idea of actually growing it? Well, we've been working with the news for about 20 years on our potato seed projects and the warehouse that we use for packing potatoes. But quinoa came into our farm because we needed something that would allow us to produce a cash crop in between our potato rotation. Because traditionally, we were that Coors Barley rotation that provided some income. But we made the decision that we needed to get away from the barley because it was a host for some of the potato diseases that we were facing. So we made the decision to go to the cover crops. But the cover crop really wasn't an economic trade back as far as cash that year. The trade back on cover crops is the following year when you don't have to put inputs back into your potatoes because you're putting your inputs into that cover crop. and producing healthy soil, um, producing nitrogen with some of the legumes we we're putting in our cover crop. But quinoa just gave us another option for a diversity in our rotation and provided some cash income for that year. And when you decided to kind of start it, what changes did it require on your end? I mean, is it basically instead of planting barley, you're planting quinoa and everything else is pretty smooth sailing? Yeah, that's basically it. We use a lot of the same equipment that we are using to produce or drill the barley crop in, or even our cover crop is the same equipment. So there was no infrastructure changes that we had to make. And it all goes back again to that water savings as well. The Coors barley rotation was using traditionally 20 inches of water every year, where quinoa you can probably grow on 10 to 12 inches. And not only are we getting some value on our crop, but we're also saving a lot of water. And that comes into play because we do have a subdistrict that charges 
a fee for the amount of water you pump here in our production area. Wow. And does that fee fluctuate or is that a set fee? No, it is fluctuated and it's based on the decisions made by the board of managers that is under the what they call subdistrict number one. In an average year then, what is that savings uh, in terms of uh, money savings between 20 inches and what'd you say, 12 inches? Yeah. So based right now on our, our fee right now is $150 for every acre foot. If you save an acre foot you're or even a half an acre foot, you're looking at $75 per acre of savings. Wow. That's a big deal. Yeah, it definitely is. And it's also, you know, we're struggling with our aquifer levels. So in order to get those aquifer levels, the state has mandated that we have a certain amount of water we have to put back in that aquifer before they make decisions for us. And we don't really want that to happen. So the more quinoa we can get planted in this area and grown, the more water we can save. And I imagine, you know, the more concerned the government gets about that aquifer, the higher those prices are going to be set. Yeah, right now they've allowed us to do that through the board of managers and those are actual landowners or producers in our area making those decisions. And they've given us a timetable of the amount of time that we have to get the aquifer back to a sustainable level. And uh, if we don't meet those requirements, then they will make some different decisions and I would assume they will increase the cost of water. Well, I want to hang out right here on the water issue for just a second because I know my audience loves this topic because it's so complicated and, and just a challenging one. From a farmer's perspective, you know, here you are going from, you know, say 20 inches to 12 inches, so saving all this water. Do you ever worry, like, am I the only one saving water and it's just going to somebody else who's still being wasteful with it? And, and I'm not necessarily saying calling out other farmers, but just other places. So is that a struggle as a farmer to think like, yeah, I could save water, but if everybody doesn't save water, then I'm kind of the, the sucker in the deal. No, that's definitely an issue. I guess the best way to explain it is we made some decisions on our uh, family farm and we're four center pivots to definitely use more cover cropping instead of growing the traditional crops here in the valley back in the early 2000s. Uh, we've stuck to it. Um, and, and it's a slow process. I think there's a lot of other producers and landowners in the area that are definitely making a lot of good changes. But just a little timetable, the subdistrict was formed in 2006. Legislative, we were given the right to have this subdistrict to form these water fees and self-impose a fee to collect the money. The reason we have this fee is to actually try to purchase land and take it out of production to save water that way and reduce pumping. So any program that we can develop through the fee to start conservation programs, uh, leverage the uh, NRCS CREP programs to get people to sign up to fallow, completely fallow land and take it out of production and save pumping. The Legislative Act came in 06, but the first year that a fee was in place was in 2012. So we basically have, for the last eight years, have had this fee in place. There has been a lot of great efforts. It's a community effort. Everybody's doing a good job of cutting back and changing their rotation. And just adding this quinoa as part of the picture is a great tool for us as a community. And we've been struggling because we're in a severe drought situation again this year. We just, Mother Nature hasn't cooperated and we haven't had the snowfall. We need the snowfall in our uh, mountains to the west of the San Luis Valley to be able to come down the Rio Grande River and then take the diversions that we are allowed by the appropriations to take that water and put it in our recharge facilities. 
the one good thing about the aquifer that is beneath us is we can replenish it fairly quickly if we have a supply of water to take off the river and put back into it. But we've been struggling because we haven't had cooperation from the precipitation and snowfall in the last couple of years. And we've talked about barley and potatoes and obviously quinoa, but we haven't talked about another big crop in the San Luis Valley, as I recall, is, is alfalfa. Some really high quality alfalfa comes out of that part of the country. And I know that's a really water intensive crop. So from a farmer's perspective, is what's happening that these fees that are being implemented on the water, is that making it less economically viable to grow a crop like alfalfa? Uh, it's a struggle. And it is set up where if you do have certain surface water rights that bring more water into the aquifer, you get credit back. So some of the growers that do produce alfalfa are actually in a balance because they do bring more water in than they actually pump out. So that allows them to keep growing that crop. But again, it's a matter of everybody in the community is making efforts. Those that have been producing alfalfa for a long, long time are stepping up and putting some of their land into uh, what the conservation reserve programs that are available through your federal programs. Well, thank you for indulging that detour. It just happens to be a topic I'm very fascinated by. So um, back to some quinoa talk here. You know, Paul, before we move over to Angela for a bit, uh, you have this company called Colorado Quinoa. When did the Annex, you know, Ardent Mills, when did they enter the picture as a potential partner in this endeavor? I think it's been about oh, three years ago we actually started talking with them and it's been really good to work with them because they have some of the expertise that we were lacking from the, the marketing, uh, developing markets, uh, developing products, the distribution channels and stuff. We started talking probably three years ago. I think we finalized our uh, relationship about 18 months ago or two years ago. And so you were saying earlier that at first, the market wasn't the problem. The problem was production and meeting the demand. Did that eventually change? Did, eventually, did you get the production kind of dialed in and need help expanding the markets? Is that kind of where that came about? Yeah, it did. I mean, we're still learning. Uh, you know, we're still increasing our yields, improving our seed. Things are really coming together. But yeah, for the first couple of decades, really, it was uh, myself and maybe two or three other growers in and out of it. But White Mountain Farm was really the only farm that it stayed with it year to year through thick and thin, and there was a lot of thin. It seems like when you're growing a new crop, you have plenty of opportunities to make a mistake, and you only have to really make one mistake a year to lose the crop. And I was pretty good at making one mistake a year. <laughs> so uh, there were several years there we were really kind of short of quinoa, so our marketing plan kind of had to change to just try to keep our current customers in quinoa year to year. And then as uh, we did kind of figure out some of the basics of growing the quinoa, and a, a lot of that had to do with, obviously, stuff like weed control fertility, how much water, when to water it. And a lot of this stuff we're still experimenting with and learning. But the genetics probably was the big thing that kind of came around. And it took several years to get the genetics to where we were having, you know, consistent-looking quinoa, the plants generally the same height, the same maturity date, because without that, it was very difficult to harvest. Uh, so we've come a long way with that. So as that started to develop, it was pretty obvious that we couldn't do everything. We were still working on the production end and uh, 
Arden was just positioned to really be able to step in and help us with the marketing and given us the volume that, so we could go out and really work with the neighbors and the other producers in the valley so we could handle that kind of quantity. And Angela, that's probably a good segue for you to step in here. You know, from Ardent Mills' perspective, when did Quinoa pop up on the radar as a potential, you know, viable business line? Quinoa has been gaining some traction and popularity with riding the wave of gluten-free movement, right? It's in the early 2000s. But I think the biggest opportunity for the global acceptance is when 2013, Quinoa was named a Green of the Year by FAO. And I think in terms of Arden Mills' perspective, prior to the formation of Arden Mills, Arden Mills is a joint venture between Conagra Foods, Cargill, and CHS. So uh, we started as a company called Arden Mills in 2014. So prior even to that, Conagra Mills has sold quinoa in their portfolio. So when we form it's just a matter of like um, selling those ancient grains. So we always have interest in ancient grains. But I think when uh, we decided to move to Denver in Colorado with the formation of Arden Mills, we started to learn about the food system and who's who in the state in Colorado. We are well connected with CSU and Fort Collins and we have collaboration that we have established a while ago with them on the wheat breeding and genetic, kind of developing some proprietary IP wheat. So when we learn about um, Colorado quinoa and Paul and Sheldon and the farmers in San Luis Valley, it really is a really nice connection for us because our business always based on relationship and our uh, building relationship with the farmers and producers. So we have that strong connections and everywhere in the country, right? So, and then you have that personal relationship. So when we met Paul at that point, we do have interest in ancient grain. Um, and as Paul indicated at the beginning, quinoa is very unique. One is gluten-free, but it also contains high amounts of protein and great balance of essential amino acids, right, than cereals. So cereals is what you consider the, the wheat, barley, sorghum, those are cereals, right? So it's really unique in the sense that it's gluten-free. It has quite a powerful kind of protein and balance on the nutrition side. And then at that point, I think our customers are reaching out to us as well with certain requirements of products that they are interested in. So as I mentioned, we have close relationship with a lot of our customers from the big uh, manufacturing companies and small businesses, regional businesses, food service, and different segments of the food industry. So when we listen to them and we see the opportunity to build a relationship stronger with Paul, I think we jump with that formality in terms of exclusive relationship uh, about 13 months ago. And what the bonus is, um, what we love to hear is also the sustainable story that Sheldon has uh, shared with you on the water conservation so all in all, I think it's just a perfect match, you know, understanding uh, our interest in ancient grains, the nutrition profile of the crop itself, and the customer interest that we serve, um, also the sustainable story on top of that, it's building the local connection that we are here in Colorado. So I think it's really a win-win, really a great relationship we have with them. 
And now I know earlier, Paul, you had said that genetics were, you know, the big reason that you were able to get the production sort of ramped up. Did you have to work on the genetics yourself or are there seed companies willing to work on a new crop, at least in the United States like this? We did it ourselves. Actually, John McCammett did most of the genetics work for the first 20 years. And then uh, he passed away four or five years ago and I had to kind of take over. But he did most of the initial screenings. He probably had, I don't know, 30 different varieties from all over the world. And some of them did okay here. Some of them wouldn't produce at all. But we've selected that over the last 35 years or so. And uh, that's how we've got to where we are. If I may add, I think it's very fascinating on this quinoa genetic discussion, because I think uh, with the advancement of molecular biology and computational biology, I think there is a public germplasm of quinoa that everybody can look at. And then the genome already has been sequenced. So compared to what Paul described 20 years plus ago, I think where we are right now, uh, we actually have the ability to look at the germplasm and look at the sequence and really understand different type of quinoa that will grow better in, in Colorado and San Luis Valley and different properties as well. So it's really fascinating. That was another real big reason that we're fortunate to be partnered with Ardent Mills because of the expertise they can bring to the table in genetics. We've been working basically on just selecting what looks good and what grows well, but now I'm getting some of the science behind it. And speaking of that science, I I would imagine one challenge in growing a a new crop in the country is it's not on label for anything. I mean, if you want to apply any sort of crop protection uh, legally, it needs to be sort of labeled for that crop. Did you run into that with quinoa? Yeah, we're definitely faced with that. And Angela, I have been working with Colorado State University, and we do have a little plot at the San Luis Valley Research Farm that Colorado State University operates and runs. So we're going through the process of trying to get some products tested so that we can get registered to be able to use those products. And Angela can add to that. Yeah, so I think um, as you are aware, there are only probably 10 registered pesticides that can be used for quinoa in the U.S., so with that, I think it makes our farmer really challenge in terms of how to protect their crops. So we identified that together, Jonathan and I and CSU, we identify basically uh, some potentials, uh, other things that are not registered. Um, we're going to do multi-year study on that resource plot to take a look at what else can we you know, register. And I think it's a, it's a complex process. This is a multi-year data collection. And also on parallel with that is we're working with uh, some company to look at potential biopesticide kind of uh, options that it's easier on that path uh, in terms of labeling and making it a uh, past regulation. So APA has a different regulation for biopesticide versus the pesticide. So those are the two things that we're working on as well. Is there any other, uh, what you call it, pseudo cereal like it out there that's grown commercially in the U.S. That, that we can liken it to in terms of it's very similar to growing this? I would say, Paul, I think, Sheldon, I think in terms of the growing part, you can um, jump in. But I think the pseudo cereal, amaranth is also considered pseudo cereal. That's a cousin of quinoa. I would say, yeah, amaranth is probably the closest. 
Well, Sheldon, for you coming into this, you know, you saw Paul's success, uh, but I'm sure you asked yourself, you know, how are we going to compete with where this quinoa is from? You know, Peru. I've done other stories where you got other crops like asparagus and some other specialty crops that are actually losing ground to the uprising of commercialized agriculture in South America. What made you convinced that, you know, Colorado grown quinoa could compete against what's probably some cost advantages they might have down there? Well, I think it came down to the just the trends of people and just in the country of wanting a gluten-free product, to be honest with you. I think that was part of it. I think we saw a demand that was there that we probably thought we had a crop that we could produce. We probably didn't have the enough acres in our two farms to do it. So that's when we started talking to a lot of the neighbors and the other growers in our area and started working with them. And I think that probably the best thing about what we've done with Colorado Quinoa is now it's not just us, but we're cooperating with at least 12 to 15 growers right now to produce enough crop of quinoa to get it out to the consumer. So I think a lot of people are you know, murky on the details of how supply chains work. And so using this as an example, if, if it's okay, you know, how does this work? So uh, Paul and Sheldon, they produce the quinoa, they harvest the quinoa, clean it and bag it. And then where does the transaction happen between Ardent Mills and Colorado Quinoa? Is it picked up FOB bagged or how's that work? Yeah, uh, actually we do like, I guess I would call it the pre-cleaning. We would get it uh, very close, ready to see it on, you know, in a product. But then uh, at that point we send it to Ardent Mills and then they go ahead and finish it, and I'll let Angela talk about what they do with it after that. But we do the pre-cleaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are two ways, I think, Tim, on the commodity kind of a supply chain. One is usually farmer plants something and they try to sell it, right, in kind of spot market. On this particular product in Kino, uh, what we called contract growing. So we basically we work closely in partnership with Paul and Sheldon and the, um, the farmers, we identify kind of like, hey, this is this year, we want to plan this much. So, and Paul kind of work with his uh, farmers and team and then plan the quinoa. So as, as after Paul clean it from the field, uh, so field cleaning, uh, as Paul mentioned as pre-clean, we further process in our facility in California and the naturals, where we, as Paul mentioned, quinoa has a saponin layer, so it has to be kind of, abraded and clean so that it doesn't taste bitter. So once we do that process, we make sure that it's food safety, there is consistency, you know, we're meeting the GMP and the HACCP programs and everything in that process. And there's certification, many little things that is happening there. And then we back it in, you know, whatever customer is looking, is it towed, is it 50 pound or retail back even. So that's how it is. And then we sell either directly to the stores for retail packs or we sell directly to customers who actually put it in the processing facility. Or sometimes we also uh, take it one more step, right? After cleaning, you still have seeds. Sometimes consumer wants it as a flower, so you have to mill it. And then sometimes you want to flake, so you have to flake it. So those are kind of the multiple different end products that our customer receiving. And then from there, they include it in their products as a finished product, as a packaged product, and sold it in the store. Very cool. Well, how big is this category? I mean, how how big do you see from Ardent Mills perspective, this uh, U.S. grown quinoa category growing? 
Yeah, I think <laughs> if I have a crystal ball, that would be great. Then. <laughs> um, I want to know if I need to plant some quinoa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the opportunity right now with plant-based food, plant-forward diet. So as as I mentioned, that quinoa has a very nice balance of essential amino acids. I think you'll see more and more consumers wanting to try something different and wanting to try to diversify their diet, right? So if you see the younger generation, they eat more diverse type of products and they actually ask beyond just the food and nutrition that it provides, right? They want to understand where is this grown? Is there any sustainability story about it? Do I feel good eating this product? So those are the things that I think very unique about Colorado quinoa. And I think the story, as Paul mentioned, quinoa use less water than a lot of the crops. So I think with that, the opportunity for quinoa to grow and the market to be, you know, in terms of everywhere, I think it's, it's pretty high because um, now you can see quinoa as staples. You see it in salads, you see it in snacks, you see it in pasta. But I think we only just starting, we developed in our culinary R&D team, uh, developed quinoa milk. So if you look at the plant-based movement, the plant-based category of yogurt, cheese, and milk is booming, right? But we haven't seen quinoa milk. So maybe uh, one of these days, our entrepreneurs are going to see the opportunity to create quinoa milk. So I think we're just starting to see the new product introduction. Um, I think it's exciting for all of us here that we can provide this interesting ingredient that is nutritious and gluten-free and it has a really great story about water conservation and it's grown in the US. So when you talk about going trying to achieve resilient supply chains with the pandemic, everybody's looking about resilient supply chain. This is growing in the US, right? So I think um, with all of those positive kind of story around quinoa, it's just a matter of us to get people familiar with the crops. So thank you for inviting us here because I think the more people know about the quinoa, I think the more people will try. This relationship with Angela and and with Ardent Mills, it seems really unique. I mean, the visibility and accessibility you get into where your product is ending up. Can you talk about, you know, if that is true, if it is unique, and if so, what are the advantages of it? I don't know if this answers your question, but the one thing I was thinking about is when Paul and I decided to form Colorado Quinoa, we were basically around 500 acres of quinoa grown in the valley. And we basically formed it because we were going to do what Ardent Mills is doing for us right now. We were going to process it and put it in a pound and a half retail bag that had our label and name on it so we could get it out to the retail stores. And we were just barely getting started with that project and we just couldn't get our foot in the door. It was a struggle because we were a two-man show and we went to a couple of trade shows and I think Ardent Mills was always around right there. And it just seemed like, you know, when they came to us and said, we would like to have more quinoa grown are you guys capable of doing it? We shook our head, yes, yes, yes. And now we're at 3,000 acres and that has plateaued off in the last couple of years. But we hope with Ardent Mills help that we can grow that, you know, to, you know, get a linear structure going here of growing more acres of quinoa here in this area for our group. Yeah. As producers, we're actually pretty busy farming. 
it doesn't leave a lot of time to go out there and develop markets and uh, have a sales force. Uh, so we we kind of came together and said, hey, if we want to grow this big, we're going to either have to really expand on our own or find some help. And it was much easier finding the help, particularly, you know, this is what Ardent Mills does. Their customers go to them, say, this is what we need. They help them develop it. They help them find it, source it. It was just really the piece that we were needing. I think this collaboration that we have with Paul and Sheldon and the farmers in Sandwich Valley, it's one way to look at um, how we can develop the partnership along the food system, right? Creating a food system that's sustainable and that be connection um, and communication that producers, breeders, customers, and everybody in the value chain will benefit. So I think that is what we are here, um, Ardenels. We have really long-standing relationship that we build through our wheat uh, heritage that we supply our customers for many, many years. So as the annex part of this huge company, Ardenels, we are so happy and so thrilled to be part of building the supply chain and food system on the specialty side, um, because I think it's a lot of opportunity for us to diversify, not just from health and nutrition perspective and what we eat, but it also for the environment in terms of uh, increasing the crop rotation, biodiversity, and then water management, right? On even fertility and soil management. I think um, I'm encouraged with a lot of the work that everybody's doing in terms of, like Sheldon, for example, like his brother Sheldon mentioned, looking at what if we do intercropping, quinoa is something else, right? So it uh, maybe can mitigate or reduce the pest pressure. So those are the things that we're, I'm looking forward to because all in all, when we increase the options that our farmers have and our consumer will eat, I think it will be beneficial for all of us. Excellent. Well, thank you all three. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. This is a great story. I mean, I, I think it's really unique what you're doing and I uh, wish you continued success with it. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for your time, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Well, thank you so much to Paul, Sheldon, and Angela for being part of the show. Uh, a lot to unpack there about bringing a new crop to market these water issues that it's helping to solve, and creating shared value partnerships between farmers and everyone along the supply chain, including large agribusinesses. Thanks again to all three of them for being willing to take the time and share their story with us, and I definitely want to try out some Colorado quinoa, so hopefully it's available near me. I uh, also want to recognize those of you who've taken the time to leave a rating and review for this show on iTunes. It really is very much appreciated. Here's one recently from Daring Detective. It's titled Complexity in Ag. It says, complexity has become increasingly more important as agriculture adapts to the tools and models of the 21st century. Tim uses a clear, dynamic approach in his interviews to bring out considerate responses in terms of agriculture. Don't miss out because the sustainable approach rings true here. Everything is truly connected. Thank you very much, Daring Detective. And if you have a chance, would love for you to go leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcast. Hey, thanks for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. We'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.